Well, let's see. We've been going through the, uh, the first, uh, the first few commandments, and we're, we're actually looking at them through the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we've, uh, as I've mentioned before, and I'll mention again this morning, the, the Ten Commandments are given in two different places. Let me just read the, it's Deuteronomy chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 11. If you want to, you can turn there in your pew Bible. It is on page uh, 154, page 154 of your pew Bible. And again, it's the, uh, the third commandment, and it goes like this. Hear now the word of the living God. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Just by way of review this morning, let's talk about reminding ourselves of the first two commandments. The first commandment speaks of God as our ultimate and final authority. He is one whose word we can take immediately without evaluation or equivocation. The word God in the Old Testament often refers to an authority. It can be all, all kinds of authorities, human as well as spiritual. But numerous places in the, in the Old Testament, a, a, a king or a prince is referred to as a god, not because they're divine or deified, but because they are an authority figure. The first commandment forces us to deal with, the, to reckon with the question, who will have the last word? Who will have the last word? Who will have the final word? You ever been in an argument and someone's going to get the final word? Or someone's going to have their say, uh, their say, their interpretation, uh, their decision will be final. And the first commandment calls us to reflect on that question. Who will have the final say? Will it be politicians? Will it be princes? Will it be our parents? Will it be our peers? Will it be our own personal preference? Which, who, who, what authority figure in our world will have the final say? Who does have the most influence? And God is saying, Israel's God is saying to them, look, understand this. I am the final word. I who love you, who have brought you out of Egypt, who have delivered you, who have set my affection on you, not because you were so perfect, not because you were so popular, not because you were so gifted. I set my eyes on you, a, a people enslaved. I set, you, I set my eyes on you when you were property, when you had no legal rights, when you had no political influence. I set my eyes on you, and you can trust me. Listen to me first. Trust me first. Obey me first. Ask me for help first. Fear me first. This is the first commandment. The first commandment says that those who have the final word are not princes or politicians or parents or peers, but it's the one who is Yahweh, who is, who is the all-powerful promise keeper. And to understand the grasp of that commandment, to follow that commandment, is to lead to life, to peace, to flourishing, not only humanly, and only personally, but collectively as, 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 as people, as a culture, as a church. So first, the first commandment speaks of God as our life-giving, selfless, benevolent authority. Bow your knee to him and to him alone. The political significance of the first commandment is just astonishing. There's a beautiful hymn that begins this way. There is a higher throne. Isn't that beautiful? There is a higher throne. 
And in fact, that's why politically the first commandment is one of the most subversive commandments in the scriptures. It looks Caesar in the eye and says, no, sir. No, sir. It's through the first commandment that we have mentioned before in Exodus chapter 1. We have, uh, we have these two uh, sort of nobody midwives who defy a pharaoh and say, we will not kill those children. We will protect we will protect the unborn. We will protect those who have no power, no influence whatsoever. And they, they, they very shrewdly outwitted a, a pharaoh who thought he was the epitome of shrewdness. So there's a, there's a defiance to the first commandment. The second commandment, the second commandment urges us. It urges us not to underestimate God. It urges us, it said, to say, don't, don't try to represent me with anything in this created order. But I use this very simple idea of a police badge or an FBI badge, right? A a badge that that communicates a certain measure of capacity, right? If someone flashes your badge, you think, oh, I better, you know, they have a certain measure of authority. But with that badge also comes constraint, doesn't it? They can't just do anything they want to. They can only do something that that they're allowed to, they've given permission to do. And so I said, what if we were to take that badge and put it on Captain America, right? Would Would that actually capture his capacities? No! It would totally underestimate his ability to do what? Save the world, right? That's what superheroes do. And so any sort of created image, whether it's in heavens and the earth and the sea, anything like that, it simply is not, doesn't begin to begin to communicate or to represent the one who stands outside the system, right? That's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what Captain America, that's what the Avengers do. That's what James Bond does. That's what we love them is they're, they're outside the system. Why? Because the system is what? It's constrained. It's corrupt, right? All these CIA guys, they're all in it for money or whatever. They're, they're never, you know, who knows? There's always up for something power, right? But it's those who stand outside the system. And that's what the second commandment is all about, is saying, don't confuse me with anybody or anything in the system because I stand outside of it and I can control it. So the second commandment is there to protect our capacity for hope in a God who stands outside the system, who, a God who laughs at his enemies, who laughs at op- the, oppre- the oppressors and, the, and, and those who are committed to injustice. He laughs, why? Because he knows their day is coming. A God who's able to deliver and bring about deliverance from the most unlikely of means, as again we'll see here a little bit in, in the Exodus story, that begins with midwives, it begins with the Pharaoh's daughter, it begins with people who really have no political clout or influence whatsoever, doing highly subversive, subversive things. Because why? Because they believe in a God who is outside the system. So that's the second commandment. This third commandment is, um, is, is one that actually we often think of in a very trite way. We think of it as, you know, we think of use, you know, saying God's name in vain, you know, saying the words of Jesus in Jesus' name or God's name in a flippant, trite, or disrespectful way. But it's, and that, and that's, that's part of it, but it's actually much, much deeper. I don't know how many of you grew up in a home where you had a tireless, caring mother. I did. My mom was uh, just the epitome of selflessness, of, of tenaciousness, of commitment to, to her husband, to her children, and providing a home, a place that was a place of life, 
a place of peace, a place of wisdom. And my, at times my mom would say these words full, in a fully, fully legitimately, very justified. She would say, why am I always the bad guy? Have your parents, your parents ever say that? Kids, have your parents ever said that? Why am I always the bad guy? Like, why do I always get cast in the role of the person who's sort of the, you know, it's the stick in the mud, the person who's the killjoy? And my mom understandably got tired of being the one who was trying to bring order and life and constraint, very needed constraint, to the chaos of our house. And she got tired of it because her name was always being misrepresented. Don't you understand that I'm trying to help you? <laughs> right? Don't you see? See, her name was at stake. And there was a sense in which she was trying to very just, justifiably, she was trying to protect her name. I don't know if you've ever felt that, maybe in your relationships or in your work environment. Do you ever feel unappreciated, unaffirmed? Ignored, misrepresented, even vilified. Why am I always the bad guy? Why are people always misunderstanding me? Well, welcome to God's world. God lives in a world where millions, millions utterly ignore him and vilify him. He lives in a world with a church for whom his son has died, that regularly underestimates him, regularly holds him in suspicion. I don't know about you, but I do. And he does not, it is, he does not appreciate. And it's not even that he doesn't appreciate, it's that he knows that it is not what's best for us. It is not what's best for us at all. Let me give you an illustration of what the third commandment's all about. As a kid one time, kids, do not do this at home. Okay, this is an example of your pastor being a bad kid. Okay, so do not do this. I wanted my, I don't know how old I was, seven or eight probably. I wanted my sister to change the TV channel to, my fav, to watch my favorite show, even though she was there first. And so being the future pastor that I was, you know, able to convince and persuade and whatever, I came, I left and came back and said, hey, Anne-Marie, Dad said that you need to change the channel. You see that? You see how smooth that was? What did I do? I used the name, the authority of someone over us to promote my own agenda. Got that? I baptized my agenda with God's, or with my dad's name. Dad said that you need to change the channel. And of course, my plan was found out. And wow, did I get in trouble, right? And, and rightly so. I'm not allowed to use Dad's name for my own agenda. In the same way, I didn't do this, in the same way that I could never forge my parents' signature to write checks. Right? Just grab my parents' checkbook, right? Or grab their credit card and use their resources, their name, for my own financial agenda. That's exactly what the third commandment is about. The third commandment is about forging God's signature. It is about baptizing my agenda with God's name. Let me give you some, some very real, not minor, but not, not full-blown examples of this. I can think of when I was 10, 12 years ago, when I was in seminary, 
There was a single woman. Uh, she was taking classes. She was, she was in the same track, the degree track that, that I was and a lot of other guys were. She was attractive. She was kind. She was smart. And with, we had her over one night for dinner in which she said that within a, a relatively short time span, like a period of about six to eight months, three different men had told her that it was God's will for them to get married. Think about that. Now, it's confusing for her if God's telling three different men at the same time that they should get married, okay? So that's baptizing. Let's see, I think that's a very, in some ways it's humorous, but it's actually very serious. We love to do that. We love, we just assume like, surely the God is in this. Or let me give a, a more difficult example. An unhappy spouse. Someone who's been through really difficult marriage. Saying, you know what? Surely God doesn't want me to be unhappy. And so I'm going to divorce my spouse. See, the great sin of Old Testament Israel, this is so important. The great sin of Old Testament Israel is that presuming is presuming that God was on their side. Okay, we'll come back to this. It's really important for the church today. In a similar fashion, I can remember growing up, and at times I would do something very foolish. And my parents would say to me, they'd say this, Bruce, that is not what Clarks do. The idea was I, I belonged to my parents. They had given me their name. And, 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 and whatever I did, I reflected the name, the family name of Clark. So, and in the same way, think about this idea. So as a, as a child, I belonged to my parents, and I reflected their name. Now, in the ancient world, people, this is really important, in the ancient world, people didn't ask, who are you? They didn't ask that question, actually, who are you? They asked the, the question they asked was, whose are you? Now think about that. Whose are you? That is to say, they would ask, to whom do you belong? With whom are you aligning yourself? Whose side are you on? Does that make sense? They would ask, to, to who are you aligning yourself? By what name are you known? To whom do you belong? That's why ancestry in the ancient world, and in fact, many, many parts of the modern world today, that's why ancestry is so important, because ancestry gives a sense of where we come from and whose side we are on. And we do this today, actually, through litmus test questions. We sort of ask people, what do you do? What do you work for? What kind of a sense of what side they're on? You know, who do you vote for? Or, you know, where do you stand in politics? Right, we, do, we, we, we sort of indicate what side we're on by name dropping. This is who I know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, this is who you are. See, in the ancient world, again, this idea of belonging to someone, of bearing someone's name indicated what side we were on. And so, um, and so we see this actually twice where the Ten Commandments are given. Both times in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, God's people are deep in conflict. So when we read it today, this Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is found again earlier in Exodus 20. And it's in a context where God's people are, have just come out of an incredible conflict in you know, being, being enslaved in Egypt. We've, we see that regularly in Exodus where there's the repeated refrain that God says to Pharaoh, let my people Go. Did you hear that? Let my people, these people belong to me. They, they're my possession. And so you can't do with them whatever you want. And it's there in, through the Exodus story that God reveals his name. And what's so important to see is that no one listens. Not even God's own people. 
In fact, it's a very moving section, chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Exodus, where God's people are complaining uh, to Moses, and Moses goes and complains to God. And, God, and say, Moses says to God, you haven't saved your people at all. And Yahweh's response, response is this, just wait, you watch this. It's sort of the low point of the narrative. And then from there on out, God starts to exert his rule, his reign, and, and the ten plagues come in full force. And before we know it, uh, the Pharaoh is brought to his knees. But we see this idea most climactically in Exodus 34. I'm going to turn there. If you have a pew Bible, turn to page 77. I want you to see where, where it is that God reveals himself. But God's people are outside of the promised land. God has delivered them. He's brought them to the Red Sea. And he's brought them to Mount Sinai, where he's given them his law. And it's there, in, having just delivered them out of Egypt, having just given them the Ten Commandments, that God's people uh, fall into, uh, the, the, they actually break the Second Commandment, creating images, and they, they worship the, the golden calf, having created that. And it's in the midst of that rebellion, it's in the midst of that, that um, failure of God's people, that God reveals his name most beautifully. It's on page 77, chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. Here we see God revealing his name to Moses. This is really important for the third commandment, central. So in verse 5, it's on the the right-hand column there on page 77, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud. Uh, God often appears in a cloud to communicate a sense of mystery, uh, unknowability, incomprehensibility. Then the, there, uh, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, that is with Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord, that is Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. There are three, I can boil this, these words down to three central attributes that communicate God's name. And this is so important. If you, want, if, you're, if you consider yourself a Christian, if you consider yourself to be someone who wants to walk in the ways of Jesus, knowing God's name, there's really nothing more important. In fact, the greatest gift that God gave to his people is simply his name. How many of you have ever been in a relationship where you begin to take a risk and you, you, you open up. You share things about yourself, maybe it's dreams, longings. Uh, maybe it's um, talents and abilities that you have. Maybe it's things you're proud of that you've done. Or maybe it's failures, maybe it's weaknesses, maybe it's some of the skeletons in your closet. And you share it with that person. You share some of the fine china and their response is devastating. You've opened up to them. You've revealed your name and who you are to them, your whole story. And their response is simply just in either indifference or inability to understand, or even worse, maybe they tell other people, they gossip about you. How does that make you feel? Here God is opening himself up 
to these Israelites. He's, he's, he's communicating who he is. And, and that name can be summarized with three things. The first is that God is incredibly forgiving. Incredibly for, forbearing and forgiving. That's the first thing. Look there again. Do so you see that there in verse um, verse 6? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Isn't that amazing? It is not hard for God to be merciful. I don't know about you. I think, oh, man, I have to like forbear. I have to be patient. And stuff. So it actually takes work. For God, forgiving, forbearing is natural. It's just what he does. He is slow to anger. First, so first, he's forgiving, he's forbearing. Second, he is faithful. He's faithful. Verse 7 says, maintain, it says, abounding in love, and that's verse 6, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love. Those words of love, faithfulness, and maintaining love, those are all communicating the same idea of steadfast love, of unfailing love, of commitment, of love that's not merely affirmation, but love that is allegiance. I'm with you, and I'm not going anywhere. Isn't that amazing? So first, Israel's God is forgiving. Second, he is faithful. He's faithful. And third, we could say it this way, he's forgiving, he's faithful, but in the end, he is not forgetful. He is not forgetful. Look at these next verses. He says in verse 7, maintaining love to thousands, for there it is again, forgiving, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. If at the end we have not surrendered, if at the end the oppressor has not lowered his arm, if at the end the unjust are bent on injustice, he will take them out. Do you see the order here is so important? Forgiving, faithful, but understand, he will not forget. Make no mistake about it. You will, no one, no one, if they have not bowed the knee, if they have not surrendered, no one will get away with anything. Got that? Forgiving, faithful, but not forgetful. These are the three things that capture who our God is. And to misuse God's name, this is the clincher here, so you know, foot stomp, foot stomp. To misuse God's name is to, is to identify yourself with God, to identify yourself with Jesus, and say, I don't need to be forgiving. I don't need to be faithful. I don't need to care about justice in this world. And God says, look, if, if that is not you, I will not let you, I will not leave you. Un if you misuse my name in those ways, understand you're a counterfeit and you don't belong to me. That's so important. To hear the gravity of the third commandment, the gravity of the third co commandment is calling us to a sincerity, to an integrity, not a perfection, not remotely a perfection, but a sincerity, a sobriety about who we really are and a sense of true surrender. We'll return to that idea in a second. But Jesus said, you know, this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Jesus actually says very much the same things. You remember, remember the story, the, 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 the parable of the um, unmerciful servant? The one who's forgiven 10,000 talents? 
And then he goes away, and he has got a friend, and that friend is like, has 100 denarii, of, you know, you know, 100 denarii is a lot of money, it's maybe, you know, today's money, it's maybe 30 grand, but he's been, just been forgiven billions. He's forgiven billions, he goes and he demands 30,000 back, he demands, he will not forgive. And he's hauled back in by the master and says, you know what, I forgave you all of that. And you couldn't do that. And then Jesus says some very sobering words. And so my father will treat each of you in the same way if you do not forgive your brother from his heart. Jesus is saying, if you don't show mercy, you will not know mercy. If you are not forgiving, you will not be forgiven. So that's the first commandment, fidelity, faithfulness, a sense of being true, being committed, committed to God, committed to his people. This is what it means, being faithful. I've mentioned this before, I'll mention it again. Among the, among the ancient gods, and even among the modern gods, like you know, the God of Islam, Allah, faithfulness is never an attribute. The gods are notoriously fickle. It is, it is, it is, it is God, it is Israel's God, and Israel's God alone who stands as the one who is committed who makes promises and keeps them, and he calls us to do the same, and we'll see that reflect as we get to the seventh commandment about adultery, that God hates adultery because it's all, he's all about fidelity. God is forbearing, he's faithful, but finally he's not forgetful. He says, you can't bear my name and look around the world and not care about injustice. You can't, you can't just go on. You can't live in your quiet, white picket fence house when there's all manner of injustice going on out there. You look at the world around us and just, ah, just not a big deal. God is saying, if you bear my name, you need to be on my side. So we see that here in the Exodus story. We see it again in Deuteronomy at the doorstep of the promised land. We've read these words in Deuteronomy, and it's there that, that Moses gives the Ten Commandments again, and it's there that they're confronted with the question, whose side are they on? If you would, turn to page 184. Turn to page 184. This is Joshua chapter 5. I need to see this because it communicates the idea of the Third Commandment so well. Joshua chapter 5. We're in the, we're in the, we're in the Bible a lot this morning. Uh, page 184. This is where God's people are now, they, they've, been, they've been brought out of Egypt, they've been taken through the desert, through the promised land, and now they are about to enter, to, to fight their way into the, into the promised land. And they're standing at the doorstep, and Joshua has taken the, the baton from Moses and as one who's in charge. And look at this, this is such a, as a child, this is one of my favorite passages. This is page 184, again, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 where Joshua, the leader of God's people, is out, and they're about ready to enter the cross into uh, the, to, to, to take um, the, the city of Jericho. We read these words, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us? Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, the man replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And I love this last part, and Joshua did so. <laughs> okay, 
right? Okay, right? Do you see the sense of, do you see the sense that's so important? It's an idea that, that to bear God's name is to be on God's side. See, the great sin of Old Testament Israel was, was, was presuming that God was on their side. And the great sin of American evangelicalism is the same. See, listen to this, gang. This is so important. We are so quick to say, I'm sorry to God. And yet we are so slow to say, I surrender. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Can, forgive me. I surrender. No, no, I got this. I got this. And see, to say, I surrender... To say I surrender is to give yourself over to the one who is forgiving. To give yourself over to the one who is faithful. To give yourself over to the one who will never forget whatever injustices have been done to you and the person who's got away with it, God's got it. He's going to remember. He will, he will, he will, he will Meet out judgment against your wrongdoers in a way that you will never be able to do. Why would we not want to surrender to a God like that? If you want to know peace, if you want to know life, don't just say, I forgive you. I'm sorry, don't just say, I'm sorry. Say, I surrender. See, it's only... Having said I'm sorry to God, he says to us, I forgive you. But it's only when we say I surrender that we'll then hear I am for you. I'm for you. God loves you too much to go along with your agenda. He loves you too much to let you go along, to go along with your plans. He's saying, get, along, get behind me. My plans are so much greater, so much, so much scarier but so much better, so much more beautiful, so much more life-giving than anything you could ever imagine. The great sin of the American evangelicalism is selective obedience. Selective obedience. In, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says these words. It's so sobering. He speaks, he, he speaks of, he, he looks at, 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 uh, at, at the disciples, or those who are listening, he says, he says this, many will, say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Many will, say, many will say to me on that day, that day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name do many wondrous miracles, and I will tell them plainly, away from me, I never knew you. Elsewhere in Luke 6, Jesus says, Why do you call, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now hear me. We worship one, we follow one who is willing to have his name utterly slandered for us. In Jesus' incarnation and in his humiliation, no one, no one understood who he was. No one got it. No, it, it clicked for nobody. He spent all 33-odd years of his life here being utterly misunderstood, being utterly misrepresented. He came as the one who was the answer, capital A, and was regarded by everyone as the one who was the problem, capital P. 
And he was literally crucified, not by public opinion. He was literally crucified, rejected for you and for me. See, listen to this. True love is willing to be slandered. I don't know if you know that. As we as parents, you know that, right? Sometimes you love your children and they don't like you. Right? Sometimes you love friends, you love even a spouse, and the things that you say, they will not like. True love is willing to be slandered. True leadership, that is love, is willing to be slandered, to be crucified. And that is exactly what happened at the cross. At the cross, we have one who went all the way down in love to be utterly, to have all of our sin taken upon him that we might have life, that we might have a new name, a name of righteousness, a name of peace, a name of blamelessness. That is our God, a God of love. Let me close with this. Um, there's a story, in fact, this is, uh, this is actually one of the many, many um, preacher's stories that goes down in lore. You can follow these, these stories through the preaching through the ages, and actually this is a story that is actually not true. It was, it was thought to be true. It's about Alexander the Great, but it's, it's, it's not true. It's a great story anyway, because I'm going to communicate this idea so clearly. Alexander the, and Alexander the Great, uh, reportedly, um, was, uh, was holding court at, at one point, and a young man was brought into him who was in his teens, early teens probably, and he was a deserter. This man had deserted from Alexander's armies in, in, in the midst of battle. And uh, they brought this, but he was caught, and the deserter was brought before uh, Alexander the Great. And, and Alexander decided, just you know, in his greatness and in his just his, his could do whatever he wants to do. He decided because the young man was young and, and just just you know just not uh, naive and foolish that he decided to pardon this deserter instead of just putting him to death right there in the spot. He pardoned the man, and as the young man was leaving, thinking that, I'm, I'm just amazed that he had been given life, amazed that he thought he was out of the clear, Alexander stopped and, and, looked at him, and, and stopped him and turned around and, and said, he asked the man, he said, what is your name? Wanting to remember this guy, right? I pardoned you once, what is your name? And the deserter sheepishly, quietly responded, my name is Alexander. And then Alexander the Great jumped up and yelled, I've given you full pardon, so you listen to me. You either change your conduct or you change your name. If he has pardoned us, if he is forgiving to us, if he is faithful to us, if he will for never forget any wrong that is done to us by those who fall outside of the people of God, how can we, how can we bear his name and continue on our own agenda? We must either change our conduct or change our name. This is the third commandment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... We stand before you this morning as those who, Father, we just, we just, I, I know about others, but my heart can be so lukewarm. Father, I'm so confident in my own plans, my own purposes, my own agenda. Father, so foolish, so proud, so convinced that I, I know what I'm doing with my life, so convinced 
that the hardships in my life are a mistake, that the, that the, the difficult relationships I have are a disaster going nowhere. So, Father, I just, I'm so quick to take over, to have my own way. But, Father, this morning we pray, we beg you that your name would be hallowed. As Jesus taught us to pray, we beg you, please stand out. Show us who you really are. Father, thank you that you are a God who fights for his name, who does all things for his name's sake. And Father, we ask you this morning, as the psalmist did, as David did so many uh, centuries ago, lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So Father, please, even as we bear your name through baptism, your triune name, Father, we come to you asking that we would be on your side. Forgive us for the ways that we desert you, the ways that we abandon you, the ways that we run in battle. And Father, I pray that you would indeed strengthen us. Give us a fearlessness to stand before a world and to bear your name, a name that is all about forgiveness, that is all about forbearance. Father, a name that is all about fidelity and faithfulness and loyalty and devotion. Father, make us committed to one another, committed to our fellow small group, small group members, committed to our leadership, committed to giving our lives to you each and every day. Father, make us, make us people who do not look at injustice and forget, who are just apathetic in the face of oppression. Mobilize us, Father, to move, to move on behalf of those who are defenseless that we might truly and fully and sincerely bear your name. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.